Fantasy Podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> Welcome to Tetra Podcats. I'm John Conway. I'm joined by the cattiest pod of them all, Darren Naish. What you been up to, Darren? I've mostly been putting time into the, uh, well, besides various academic projects, which are always going on, just I, the, the big bird behaviour thing that I've been working on for weeks now. I finally finished that, which is uh, quite an achievement. Um, uh, the Cryptozoologicon. Been working on the Cryptozoologicon, which we discussed last time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our book on... Um, it's on cryptozoology, but we're doing something different, aren't we? Yes, well, we're trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still working on on exactly the, the template that we want to follow. But um, yes, the aim is to. Uh, I really, I really like that. I, I, I've got a horrible feeling. I'm totally repeating myself, but I do really like the speculative aspect cryptozoology the fact that people what the thing i've been concentrating on in some of the recent accounts i've been writing is how people like the great classic cryptozoologist bernard hooverman's roy mackle and so on they come up with an identification for something they come up with a proposed identification based on a very small number of accounts and then once they've got that identification they then absorb other accounts into it and then they build up like a big grand scenario as to what this animal you know, the details of its anatomy and its evolutionary history and, and so on. So, um, yeah, it's been fun doing that. And, and check out John. This obviously, the rest of you won't see this until the book's out. But check out the thing I did on the uh, Mobilu, Mobilu, Mobilu. So that's a classic case of this. There's one account, there's one sort of story that Roy Mackle, this cryptozoologist, Roy Mackle gets this account of someone, of a swimming creature from, I think, Cameroon, certainly the... Congo, Congo region, uh, said to described as having plates upon its back. And a person points to a stegosaur in a book and says, oh, yes, that looks like the mobile, 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 the creature with the plates sticking out of its back. And then that's all we have. That's it. Okay? Nothing more than that. Literally, that is it. But Mackle then writes a whole chapter in his book on saying, living stegosaurs, stegosaurus. <laughs> wow. There were surviving stegosaurs, and they're aquatic, and they live in the Congo. And, uh, and I find that, you know, no matter what, I would think that no matter what level of skepticism you operate, isn't that massively unsatisfying? Because to immediately hear plates on its back and then go, oh, Stegosaurus! <laughs> it's Stegosaurus! It's like, there's no, did you not think to write, well, you know, could it be, could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be this? You know, there's so many, and and I actually think that there's some. I actually think there's like way superior explanations for a creature that's described in the way that it was. So, yeah, um, it's kind of interesting that notion that because something has one of the traits of an an animal that lived what 150 million years ago, that clearly yeah. it is that animal. Nothing else could have evolved something similar. You know, it it's <laughs> it's pretty funny, sort of funny way to think um yeah but yeah getting back to the spec side of things cryptozoology in some ways is the it's the longest running and largest spec project in the world isn't it <laughs> that's a that's an excellent point we should we should run with that yes yeah uh, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, throwing in ideas about 
well, basically making up animals, aren't they? I mean, it's quite it's quite interesting uh, from that perspective. <laughs> you, you remember I showed you that um, Sea Monsters on Maps book? I, I mentioned this on crypto, on, on uh, Tetrapod Zoology uh, in the, the article where I just briefly, you know, referred to some new books. Um, and uh, Sea Monsters on Medieval Maps, I can't, I can't remember. Oh, here we go. Um, yeah. Ch- Chet Van... Um, Chet Van Duzer's Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps, or yeah. Renaissance Maps, yeah. And the, the, the key, the interesting thing there is that, uh, you know, most of us are familiar. If you, if you looked at any images on old maps, there are these bizarre alien creatures that don't seem to really match anything. This thing called the Sea Orc is one example, with giant tusks sticking out of its head and a kind of fish-like body. One of one of several where they're so weird that they you can kind of imagine they might be based on something real, something with big tusks and a fish-like edge, and it could be based on a walrus. But on the other hand, they're so kind of consistent and with certain behavior, uh, biologically plausible details included in the illustrations that cryptozoologists, old map makers, all kinds of people have looked at these things and thought, what, what does this describe? It must describe something we don't know. But if you actually look at the transformation of these things over time and their origins and like why they're included in maps in the first place and the whole philosophy behind the artists who are depicting them, it's like, well, once you like trace it back to source, they really aren't basing them on any good descriptions or whatever. And, and in part, a lot of the sea monsters are created based on the idea that there are there's meant to be this um, everything in the terrestrial realm is mirrored in the, the marine realm and, and other stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's um, interesting. I mean, also, uh, presumably, um, artists were copying from other artists just like they do today. So you end up building on other people's ideas. You might put in little details of your own. So you can end up with quite a rich um, and apparently relatively consistent mm. um, depiction of something that is just is completely made up. Yeah, um, <laughs> medieval speculative zoology. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, well. Yeah, um, and, and and when you you go back to that original idea that people were reconstructing animals because they thought they should exist, not because they were based on sightings, then we've kind of stuck with the ones we, as in people over the last two or three hundred years, have stuck with the creatures that are believed to be more plausible. So, like a sea orc or a sea elephant or a sea lion, they're like more plausible, but they forgot. And excluded the sea chicken, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the and the, uh, the the others that uh, the the sea hog and uh, and such the, the, sea, the sea dog, uh, nothing to do with dog fish or you know, um, yeah. There, there is another pattern there, and <laughs> the sea chicken seemed considerably less cool than a, yeah, yeah, than a sea true. sea lion or a sea elephant. We're not- <laughs> up by the way people there are actually sea chickens depicted on uh, old uh, maps of the sea and sea chickens are a uh, <laughs> thing, thing that have been there from 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 early on from one of the from among the first map of mundi actually olden days people that was so crazy hmm. <laughs> um yeah where to from there oh it's a good book though i think is it out yet oh yeah yes yeah. been out for a couple of months it's published by the um the British Library, and it's yeah, beautiful, lavishly illustrated in colour, and, and I strongly recommend it to anyone really interested in medieval maps or cryptozoology or the history of monsters or pretty pictures. Sea monsters on medieval and Renaissance maps, Chet Van Duzer, and it's uh, discussed in the Tetrapod Zoology article on uh, what 
what did I call it? I called it books or something. <laughs> the book, the one about books. The one about books. Um, we kind of got things out of order there because we're going. We've got launched into our cryptozoology and speculative zoology. Um, Sorry. But we were going to talk a bit about the extinction exhibition, which oh, we yes. both went to see at the NHM. Yeah. Um, a few days ago. Um, yeah, extinction, not the end of the world. Yes. So, what did you think of this exhibition? Well, I I really quite liked it. I was I was quite impressed with it. Um, it runs until uh, I think September, so people in southern England or whatever the UK that want to go see it, you don't have ages, but um, uh, and it, you have to pay to get into it. So we went there in a review capacity, and uh, I liked the kind of I liked the sort of feel of it. I got this kind of like melancholy kind of ambience due to the lighting the exhibition furniture this sort of like you know wood and stuff the uh, and the sort of music they had playing when i was looking at the unfortunately i'm going to end up repeating everything that i'm writing up for the tet zoo review because i'm going to review the exhibition on on tetrapozoology but um i don't know looking at the bit on dodos and the the so they they have a lot of stuff on display in cases uh, a lot of stuffed recently extinct animals they also have so things like um, uh, huia and uh, well things that aren't extinct but you know in trouble like kakapo and um, models a really nice model of a dodo much better than the, the famous two dodos that they have in the um, the, the bird uh, gallery. Um, they had megaloceros because they had everything from like geologic extinctions, didn't they? Like big the big events. Then they had Pleistocene extinctions and the controversy as to how how involved humans were versus climatic. Um, causes and stuff and then they had recent extinction the modern biodiversity crisis and that is the the melancholy you know the, the most depressing bit so the exhibit on the dodo for example it's got a, a model of a dodo in a case really good looking dodo looks kind of accurate as i say in contrast to many other dodo models and uh, it's against but behind it is like a giant map of mauritius showing what's happened to mauritius since um well since people started cutting down the trees the last couple of hundred years and um, the last well, few hundred years since the 1500s. And yeah, I that's quite, that's quite kind of like sad. Um, so I will note a criticism here. I didn't think it was, there was that much stuff. It felt mm. a bit sparse to me. Well, you always going to get that with the temporary uh, exhibit. I also think there's well, this problem with modern modern museum exhibits as, as well. They they are always very spacey because designers nowadays don't like to clutter things. They mm. think that if you go if you go to a wall, and I've actually heard designers say this: you go to a wall, there should be one point of interest. So you go to a wall, and there's literally a skull and an information panel. Whereas there's enough space for fifty skulls. Yeah. You know, if you think of that bit where there were hominins, there was a Neanderthal and a, and a modern human and something else and um yeah that that's like all there was and, there, and then there was a giant picture of a neanderthal's face wasn't there but um and i yeah. think what this does is it damages what i really like museums for is some sort of feeling of comparison and pattern yeah so if you look yeah. at the older like we were looking at the bird exhibit later on um having a bunch of different bird feet right next to each other is yeah. really, really interesting. Um, and you lose that in the modern style where everything's spaced out. So you can't do direct comparison. 
And even in an exhibition like this, where it wasn't so much about phylogeny or comparison, I think there's something to be said for arranging things so you can see pattern. And I, I, I don't, I don't really know how I do this, but I think there's something, something there about patterns of extinction and things which you couldn't possibly do with that style. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought it was a bit too. It was a bit too gloomy for me it reminded me of the dinosaur hall they're extinct too so there's a bit of a pattern isn't there well the lighting yes yeah, so, dinosaurs yeah the, the the lighting was an issue it makes it very hard to take photographs and um i wondered whether that was deliberate as an ambience thing or whether it's a constraint of the building because exhibits in the naturalist museum they are constrained by what they can you know, lighting they can put up and, and stuff and also if you've got historically significant old taxidem things on display which they did they had a lot of those then you don't want to have you know have big lights on so yeah indeed and you um, can't have um natural lighting on a lot of these things yeah one more thing i want to mention is is um computer panels computer displays they had now this is your chance if you want to to talk about that computer game survivor whatever it's called gets that in a minute <laughs> but um they weren't very big on um there weren't many interactive computer panels apart from that one there's a giant game basically and it's big it's like the whole thing is the screens are i don't know two and a half meters side to side maybe a bit more yeah this, i'd say three three or four three, yeah. yeah this big this big thing where you're you're moving little characters around and around a screen and seeing if they can survive extinction events see how long they persist for in geologic time i managed to survive for 30 million years which i thought was pretty good going but um um other than that there wasn't much com com computer stuff and i like that because uh, you, know, you go to a museum to look at stuff you really should go to look at stuff and if you take other people particularly kids you should be taking them to look at stuff and I think it's important that when that that you know having having computer space is bad because they often they outdate very quickly they're difficult to um, replace very expensive and they're often fundamentally built into the guts of the uh, the whole installation the exhibit and also they um, <clears throat> they give people now this thing I don't like about them and this sounds snobbish and you know sorry if it does but it gives people an excuse to do the same old crap that they always do so you look at kids in a museum exhibit and they'll be like you know some dead thing that like nobody's ever seen like the, the, this is the last whatever this is the last tasmanian tiger in a case this is the last pickled ivory world woodpecker but here's a computer screen and it's touchscreen and everybody's looking at the computer screen and they're like not caring about the stuff that they're supposed to be there to look at um i i went without mentioning any names, I was at an event recently uh, and there was a kid with me and he spent the entire day on an iPad because he could. And it's like, if, he, if we'd taken that iPad away from him, he would have actually engaged with the stuff he was there to look at. But it's like, it's like you give people an excuse to do the same stuff they could do anyway. I mean, our, our own, the technology that we've all got available in our homes and, and stuff in the developed world, you know, most people have got touchscreens and iPhones and iPads, whatever. That's like the stuff you see at museums is. I agree, is... and I think that I think museums are crazy for doing this because they are outclassed by stuff people have at home, and also it's not only distracting from the main strength of museums, which is actual artifacts, you know, actual things, you, real things you can see, which you can't have in your home, um, but it's also a poor place to experience 
well, yeah, sound quite wanky, but um, you know, in depth, in depth, interactive experiences, because that sort yeah. of that sort of thing can you can do that. You can make incredibly good, interesting sort of interactive games and stuff which have an educational component. But the chances of being able to do that in a museum where you've got a couple of minutes to figure out how everything works and mm. people are behind you wanting to have a go and other people are just po poking buttons at random is it's crazy. I just I don't think it ever really works. Um I can't think of a single interactive exhibit of that sort, a computer interactive exhibit that was meant to be conveying something at all complicated. Um, like evolution or extinction that's been successful. Mm. I can't mm. I can't think of anything like that. Some of the, you know, physics stuff I think lends itself to interactive exhibits a bit more. But even so I think I think a lot of that's pretty weak. But yeah, I agree. Um it's it's uh, also in this particular exhibition, the extinction exhibition, it was a bit tonally out of place, wasn't it? Mm, it was kind was. of loud and <laughs> <laughs> childish and happy and yeah. the rest of it was <laughs> <laughs> it was all, oh my god we're going to die um yeah um <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i will t i will talk about this a little bit actually that um i a few months ago about no a year and a bit ago i pitched a evolution simulator to the natural history museum and I felt like this game was suspiciously similar in some ways to my idea. Um, and they did talk about putting it in this exhibition, but didn't contact me again after that. Um, and I thought, as I would, <laughs> my version was better, Darren. My version was better. I Mine was a true evolution simulator, so you had... Um, a few people have probably seen this. I, I, I put it up on Facebook. I don't know how many people played it. It's called Anima Kills. Um, it had um, traits which were passed on through generations and would randomly evolve. And the entire... Sorry, the... God. The ecosystem was dependent on the animals in it. There wasn't external stuff going on. So it was all about the interaction between different living things. And you'd still get, interestingly, things like um, blooms and extinctions just based on different animacules evolving. Um, so I thought in some ways it was more instructive than your animals die if they get hit by a, by a meteor. Volcano. Yeah, sorry, volcano. Which mm. seemed to be what the um the <laughs> yeah and there were glaciations <laughs> as well then. there were yeah. glaciations but still you know they hit the hit yeah. the um hit the ice and boop, they're dead <laughs> <laughs> they just ran straight into it it felt yes it was quite simplistic in some ways it has to be that way and I don't think that anyone would have got what was going on in my game really which is probably uh. why they changed these things around um given like the few minutes you might look at it in a museum. There's just no way you would understand what was going on. Um, I don't think you come away from, from the, the, the one as part of this exhibit. You don't come up, maybe from yours, you might learn something because most people still obviously do not. The average person, I don't think really understands what evolution is meant to be. No. They're, they're not what it's meant to be, what it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still thought to be 
the the production of superior life forms from lower ones you know that that the things want to evolve they want to stretch their necks higher that sort of thing but yeah. um it's generally hard to look at these exhibits and and see people taking away learning anything and i, I wouldn't have certainly learned anything from that uh that display the the one the one that we looked at it was um yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's hard to get people to. It's hard to design something that they can. Yeah, t- people can take take something take something away from it. And um, I think it's it, and, evolution is an interesting case in this respect. I think extinction is also um, it's it's similar and it ties into evolution in this way. Um, it's actually such a simple idea. I'm surprised that we've had such a difficult time of it getting people to understand what it is. Mm. Um, uh, you know this this notion, yeah, in improvement on from lower life forms to higher life forms is so yeah. entrenched. But why is it so difficult to under for to get across the simple notion of variation and selection? Variation and selection leading mm. to long term change. I just yeah. it's not that complicated. Well, yeah, I, absolutely. But we're, I noticed that we're surrounded by inaccurate definitions i mean even if you look at the average dictionary i think there's something like maybe not but something like the oxford english dictionary the definition of evolution is completely erroneous it is like something like the the production of of superior ones from inferior ones or something something like that that people don't get this concept that there's yeah a, a random variation well this is not random there is a degree of variation and then there's selection acting on the variation it's yeah dead simple not explained well enough and the, these these exhibits, if they're not getting across that that point, and I don't think in this case this one did, the another thing to dislike about computer displays is the amount of money they must cost. I mean, surely that we're talking about so what, three or four meters of screen of interactive screens, giant game, really nice installation with good furniture around it. How much money is spent on that? And um, you know, couldn't it? Would it not be? a better use of money to spend it on something that does actually convey convey the message or shows people something that they were they only see at that museum uniquely see i mean how, you know we know how much unique stuff there is in a world-class museum like enhm london so i think that's another reason to dislike them yes so yes. you can say the same for robots interactive robots you know they're all over the place um not interactive robots but just you know animatronic things all over the place in museums nowadays and they're they're just useless. They're 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 quick. They're quickly redundant. They look terrible. They don't really you know they don't teach you anything. And okay, the, spe- yeah. the spectacular one like the Tyrannosaurus at the Natural History Museum, you can understand. I can understand that children will come away thinking, "Wow, I really liked the moving Tyrannosaurus." But um, yeah, I think animatronics is a is a slightly different kettle of fish because. I suppose in theory, interactive sort of things could be different if you could get some sort of immense scale happening, right? Something that yeah. you, you just can't get that thing happening in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and animatronics, I think, if they could be done very, very well, um, would be possibly a, a good thing. Much like models or paintings or something, they're sort of just, you know, helping you imagine this thing. Um, but the problem with animatronics, of course, is if you're going to just, if you're going to cheap out, they're going to look terrible. And yeah, um, they don't last. They don't yeah. last because they're meant to be on all the time. They break down constantly. Yeah. And you know, a, they're really expensive too. Um, 
Yeah. But if you want to create a like a proper world class could this be real type animatronic, you're looking at many, 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 many millions. Um mm. for a dinosaur, for example. So yeah, whether museums should be bothering with that, I don't know. Maybe as their centerpiece, but then they really have to pony up the money to make it a really crash hot one. Otherwise, it's a disaster. God, those dinonicus. Those dinonicus. <laughs> <laughs> with the, one of them, one of them, it's like neck is all torn because obviously the, the 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 whatever the skin is made from is not strong enough to withstand the constant clicking of the head backwards and forwards. Well, it has but been yeah, flicking that... its head back and forwards since 1993. So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> so yes, and another, another reason to, to, to dislike robots is that they, the same, as, the same as computer panels and such, they have actually replaced stuff that, you know, I think people should go to museums to see. And there are museums in the world where people have... There's, I think there's a famous one in China. I can't remember which one. I don't want to mention any names, so I'll probably get it wrong. But there's a famous museum where they've like gotten rid of all their skeletons and replaced them all with models that are terrible, like the worst dinosaur models ever. The same <laughs> that you would see in a cheap, crappy theme park. Um, mm. So, you know who wants to go to a museum and look at silly old bones? No, they're, yeah. they're in the basement taking the bits. No, no one wants to look at those. So... So, yeah, extinction, not the end of the world. The Natural History Museum running until something like September. I, I, would, I would recommend it for people that are really, you know, this, I think most of our listeners are zoology and paleontology nerds. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. And um, I'll be writing about it on Tetra Zoology. And I did, I did enjoy the amount of stuff they had on display in terms of specimens and, uh, um, yeah, the things they actually had as part of the exhibit. So, All right. Um, okay, let's return to uh, cryptozoology again. God, crypto podcasts. Yeah, oh, we should say we did, we met with Henry Pilstrom at the oh. at the NHM. So um, hi to him as well. He's a zoological polymath who's who's worked on mammals and and birds. And uh, yeah, it's cool to meet him. So yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah, cryptozoology again. Again, yes. Um, the, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about Loch Ness monster, which is always a uh, perennial favourite. Ah, oh, we love this. Yeah. Yes, and the photos thereof. Yeah. So time is an issue for me over basically the whole of the summer and all the way up until September. So a good way to get to keep things chugging along on Tetraboard's audio is just to repost old articles. And the Loch Ness monster, monster one is from like 2007, I think. So definitely, uh, definitely worthy of a revamp. Um, and uh, I mean, I think I think it says this in the article anyway, but my main take on this kind of thing is most people are familiar with the photos, familiar with photos alleged to show the Loch Ness Monster, and most people are aware of the fact that at some point someone said, eh, that probably isn't actually a monster, it probably is dot, 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 you know. And that's as far as it goes for most people. They don't, you know, and unless you're really into this stuff, um, you you wouldn't have gone any further into it. Whereas in fact, if you know the literature and you've you've got the articles and the books and such, then it's uh, not difficult to um, write at length about what did actually happen to these photographs, what people the work that has been done on them, and what people have found out what they what they've claimed about them. So starting from the surgeon's photo of, of 1934, the famous one that's that's. The Loch Ness Monster phenomenon basically starts in 1933. Claims that it predates that are not convincing. They're all absolutely um, vague and they just seem to refer to generic things that are said to be in any lake or river. Um, 
you know, throughout the whole history. Loch Ness is not remote or poorly known or poorly explored or uninhabited, anything like that. It, it was always a major thoroughfare. It was patrolled by vessels, you know, for you know, hundreds of years prior to the early 1900s. There's a large settlement on its shores. Uh, it's mentioned, it's, you know, it's, well, it's like 24 miles long or something. It's, it's a well-known. Yeah, it's, it's a funny um, thing. When I was a kid, I imagined Loch Ness as being this lake, possibly not that large, some godforsaken place out in the wilderness. Um, and then well, I remember looking at it on a map and thought, wow, it's like right smack bang in the middle of Scotland there. And it virtually bifurcates Scotland, doesn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> and yeah. there's towns around it and it doesn't look very remote. I'm surprised yeah, people haven't yeah, been seeing yeah. the Loch Ness monster a lot more often, really. Exactly, and they and they haven't. And there's even there's a a, a guy who um, manned the, a ferry that on a daily basis went up and down Loch Ness, and he and it's reckoned that he did like a thousand trips up and down Loch Ness. And uh, and he, he was, I, I think the case is he was either totally unaware of a Loch Ness monster or he'd never seen one. And uh, so, you know, I, I think someone like that, their, their experience should count for something. Tim, what you've, the opinion that you've just put forward is actually very similar to what some cryptozoologists have said. There's several uh, Loch Ness monster books written by Tim Dinsdale, one of the most famous and most respected Loch Ness investigators. And um, um, one of his first books, I think it might, just might be called Loch Ness Monster, he said that you know, his very first trip, because he basically he saw something and he became convinced that it was real. And the thing he saw almost certainly isn't a monster at all. It's a boat, I think. But um, um, he says how he went up to uh, um, Inven uh, Drumdrocker in Venice, one of the nearby places, and he said, I was expecting, you know, some rural remote location. I was surprised to find a town <laughs> <laughs> on the shores of a lock and there were people everywhere and there were boats in the water. It was like, goodness me, this monster truly does <laughs> does live on the on the edge of a, of a, of a, of a well-habited area. I'm surprised people don't see it more often. It's like, you know, alarm bells. So, um, yeah, if, if you get all the photographs together, now... There's some photographs that are alleged to be of the Loch Ness Monster, and they're ambiguous. They are just dark lumps or bumps in the water. Uh, David Peters photographs. <laughs> they could be anything. Um, but there are others, that, any that are any good. It's like whenever people have looked into them, when they've like collected the background information on these uh, images, it's, 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 they're either fakes or they're hoaxes or, or they're misinterpretations there's one that's supposed to show an s-shaped neck but it's actually a gull flying in front of the the camera i didn't include that one but um but all the classic ones i'm trying to think of any classic ones that aren't documented or almost certainly to be hoaxed so starting with the surgeon's photograph i mean we can't prove that it's a hoax there is this pretty robust story from um uh, Sperling and Weatherall, I always forget their first names. Um, Ian, Ian Weatherall and Christian Sperling. And they claimed that, um, that it was perpetrated by them using a toy submarine with a, a carved head on the top. But even if that's not true, there's no way that object is an, is an animal. It doesn't look anything like an animal. Um, estimates of its size it's like nowhere near this at the most it's supposed to be a meter tall at the most that's probably an overestimate that comes from some people yeah who i mean you've got this up on tetsu of course and I, with the um 
uncropped version, it's just <laughs> clearly obvious that this thing is tiny. Exactly. It's really small. It looks like maybe a foot high. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, even if it's not what they said it is, even if it's not a, a submarine, are you seriously thinking that's a, quote, monster? I mean, I thought, because that, that's a, a serious discrepancy, because every single account of the Loch Ness Monster describes a creature that's meant to be many metres long, enormous, like over 10 metres long, maybe 15 metres long or something, meant to be huge. So um, unless you want to prepare to say this is a baby one, oh, just forget it. It's just, just rubbish. My bet the- is that if it's not a hoax, it could just be a twig. It could be like a small branch. Anything. I mean, yeah. Shame. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I did is I went through most of the famous photographs and, yeah, it's, check, check it out. It's all on Tetrapodzology and they can, all be, they can all be shown to be hilarious hoaxes. Um, the, 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 the details of the stories are really funny. I was, I was looking at across the, the lock when I noticed an enormous monster, bigger than anything I'd ever seen. My son was standing next to me at the time, but he was busy looking at a car engine, so I couldn't bring his attention to it. I quickly managed to change, change my lenses and snap off several photographs. So seriously, you didn't say to the person next to you, what? What? <laughs> so that's, that's this P.A. McNabb story from 1955. Stop um, bothering me. I'm looking stop, at my engine. Not now I'm using my eyes. They're pointing in another direction. Peter O'Connor photograph. I was, I woke up in the middle of, I woke up at 6am in the morning. It was still dark, even though it was May when it should actually be light at 6am. And I saw a large creature moving in the lock. I waded out into water waist deep. I was trained as an SAS commander. So I was able to move through the water really quietly. <laughs> and I took a photograph of this thing. It looks a bit like a plastic bag and a stick, but, um, uh, yeah, and and so on and so forth. They're all they're all really funny. That's and, the Peter uh, O'Connor one, right? Yes, that's, yeah, that's that's right. Yes, that's actually my favourite photo. I like that one. Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's several different versions that differ in terms of like how um, grainy they are, or how how crisp the images are, and in some of them it looks more obvious in others that the head of it um, looks more sticky in others. In the the grainy ones. And by the way, I, I mean there's different versions only according to which book they were printed in. Yeah. But um, the, some of them, the head looks plausibly like a head that's slightly demarcated from what could be the uh, front part of the neck. And in, in others, it's just an amorphous, sticky thing. Um, and, and, and again, even if you don't accept, all the, you don't accept the, the claim that it's a hoax, uh, an investigator called Morris Burton, well-known biologist and writer, Morris Burton said that he found at a spot he found like a discarded plastic bag and a stick that was the shape of the head. Even if you don't accept that, and just, even if you ignore that entirely, it's like just look at the image. It's, again, you know, what's more likely that someone has actually photographed an unknown mega beast or that we're actually seeing a plastic bag <laughs> and a stick? And, and the, the discrepancies, the, the, you could, could you really wade in the water to waist height that close to a super secretive, giant, potentially dangerous animal? Is how do you explain the discrepancy of the lighting? How do you explain the? Well, it was dip- in the SIS, man. He was like secretive, and you know, <laughs> he was, to make he was a stealth wader, a stealth wader. <laughs> <laughs> so, also we have this new photograph from last year, from 2012, taken by a guy called George Edwards, which uh, which again just continues in the same great tradition. So he says that, oh look, I photographed a monster's hump, and it clearly belongs to an animal that's really big um i forget the size he 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 claimed for the for the, the hump basically said it was it was huge 
he was selling the image as a postcard sometime before releasing it to the media, but <laughs> again, it's all on Tetrabots. Well, I'll even repeat myself, but we know for that the thing he's photographed is identical, so far as we can tell, identical to a uh, a pretend hump that was made for use in a documentary in uh, 2005, and we even see the exact same hump on George Edwards' boat during that documentary coincidence so, um, <laughs> without doubt so the the scale thing is quite interesting with um the Loch Ness Monster isn't it because some of the things suggest that it's absolutely enormous this one with the um the castle yeah is that McNabb's photo McNab- yeah. yes that's right yeah um that thing is absolutely huge mm. by any measurement whereas <laughs> yeah clearly other ones are quite a bit smaller um, it's interesting how big people think it could possibly be. I mean, something that big in that... I mean, Loch Ness is long, but it's not that wide. <laughs> no, no. And uh, it's... I mean, th- this all relates. The, the, there's, there's so much a huge diversity in terms of what people claim they see in the Loch. And I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think the main reason for the phenomenon is that it's so famous that anybody goes there, they have this idea that they might see a monster. Um and thus any object seen on the surface of the lake that you could see at any lake, any body of the water in the world, people see it. And, you know, the average person that goes there is not going to be an experienced observer of aquatic goings on. Yeah. So um, if the standing waves and, and weird wake effects and so on, um, these are all unusual things. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting back to this sort of exotic location sort of, thing again that people think that it's um Loch Ness is sort of somewhere really um out of the way I think this is true of places like uh, this is a recurring theme you know um Transylvania for example mm. people think oh that's what dark forests where people are still living in the middle mm. ages and really it's the majority of Romania isn't it or it's a large part of Romania they've got cities and cars and everything yes. and um <laughs> and I I think it, but I still think it's deeply ingrained in lots of us anyway. I mean, um, I'm always a little bit surprised when I go overseas somewhere and find out that it's pretty much the world is pretty much the same everywhere nowadays, isn't it? You go, yeah, everyone's got cars, people have Xboxes. You know, I remember um, going to Jordan a few years ago. And we were, going, we were going to go camel trekking in the desert. But before we went camel trekking, we went to our guide's house. And we we're just sitting in the front room waiting for him to bring up the jeep to take us to the camels. The jeep to take us to the camels. Um, and there, there we were sitting and we looked into his front room and there are his kids all sitting around this enormous television and an Xbox. <laughs> in a Bedouin hut in the, uh, in the desert. <laughs> Well, yes, there's not really yeah. that much of the world left that's mysterious and remote, which is a bit of a bit of a shame mm. for um, cryptozoologists, isn't it? I think wherever wherever you go, wherever there are people, which yeah, not many places. It's uh, it's uh, it's uh, yes, yes, certainly true. So um, um, 
Yeah. So I, my, my take on cryptozoological mysteries is, is it's always quite easy to, I think people are inclined to come up with like grandiose overarching explanations like, well, there can't be a Loch Ness Monster because of the biological productivity of the Loch. You know, that's a common explanation. There can't be a plesiosaur because plesiosaurs couldn't survive in the cool waters of the North Hampshire, blah, blah, blah. These kinds of overarching, you don't actually need to come up with that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking that increasingly we should move away from it because all you need to do is just go back to the root just go back to the um, the body of eyewitness accounts and uh, uh, judge them on their own merits. And it's actually pretty easy to knock them down, as as is the case with the Loch Ness monster. There is no evidence for a large undiscovered animal in the in the log. Yeah, I mean, I, but I guess uh, some of the prior plausibility stuff is is somewhat useful, um, mm. isn't it? I mean, well, for certain types of um, creatures, it is anyway. Yes, absolutely, sure. Should I just read out some of the hilarious comments I've received over Facebook? Um, yes. Mike O'Sullivan, are there kaiju? Oh, God, let there be kaiju. Uh, Cameron McCormick, kaiju pneumatisti. Um, <laughs> I do hope discussions of Pacific Rim don't break out into a fist fight. David Pruss, have you watched Godzilla films and other Japanese kaiju films? Mark Carter, we had a report of an Australian pelican eating the corpse of a black swan in the company of two fledgling wed-tailed <laughs> eagles. Wedge-tailed eagles are Alice Springs sewage ponds today. No, if necrophagy is common in pelicans <laughs> or corpse-sharing between them and large raptors for that matter. There are photos, by the way. Wow. Uh, Blake Smith, how is kaiju babby formed? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Blake. And Alex Klein, Klein, sorry, pronounce your name wrong. Is there any chance, if you're going to discuss the dark side of duck biology, since this video came out yesterday? And the video is titled, Scientifically Scientific. Accurate Duck Tales. Yes, <laughs> you know, Disney's Duck Tales. <laughs> I won't look at that now. But <laughs> yes. That's, uh, definitely one to check out. <laughs> yeah, Scientifically Accurate Duck Tales. Is it, is it like... Does it involve brutal rape and murder? Yes, it does very much so. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> no Scrooge McDuck diving into a, 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 a sea of money, gold coins, or whatever. So, it does have know. that scene, but I'll I'll give it away. He breaks, <laughs> breaks his neck. <laughs> ah, scientifically accurate. Okay. All right. Well, well now we have discussed it. So. Yes. Okay. Well, we. so that's a good. That's a good. Um. Ooh, that's a good. Uh. Segue into the big topic. Yeah. The pig, the monster, the monster yeah. topic of Pacific yeah. Rim. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so we've now both seen it. Yep. Saw it together. Perhaps you should start with some of the stuff you liked. Well, See if well, I agree I, with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear by now that when I watch a movie, I'm not necessarily, I don't know, I sort of I don't really take away the kind of, I don't know if there's something wrong with me or if this is kind of a common thing, but I, I watch a movie in the same way that like, you know, a 10 or 11 year old, I don't want to say boy, but a child does. So uh, uh, what, what interests me and excites me about the story, I mean, I, I love Pacific Rim. I was really excited by it I, because it's about giant <laughs> robots and monsters. It's about kaiju. The, the kaiju were awesome. And um, just, I do just want to say briefly, you know, this, 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 this massive inequality in terms of like the fact that there, there are scenes where it's like every single character is, is male. That is very strange. And why did they not? Why did they not think of that? That's really odd. Well, I'll tell you the. Of... I can tell you the argument. In, the people say that this is a trope used in anime to emphasise the importance of the main female character, but there's no other females in it. But the problem is, of course, there are other women in this. They just aren't given speaking roles. Um, we heard one or two words from Sasha 
Kadnovsky, the Siberian, the Russian lady who uh, was piloting Cherno Alpha with her brother. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, <laughs> it's and weird. it literally was one or two words, wasn't it? I mean, I just I I can't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. But so yeah, getting back to the monsters. Yeah. Um. The I I like the kaiju. I mean Wayne Barlow. So uh, we might be repeating stuff we said last time. I can't remember. Wayne Barlow is obviously uh, involved in the designs for for the kaiju, and um, really good job. I really like the look of them. I think some of them were like really you know you know fascinating and compelling uh, movie monsters worthy additions to. Um, the the world of kaiju uh, and remember that we only saw a handful in the movie as well. There's meant to have been hundreds of them, and we saw glimpses of some of them in the news footage that rolled at the start. And I believe there are additional ones in the graphic novel prequel. There's a prequel, <laughs> Tales from Year Zero. So we mentioned we we were talking last time, the last podcast about the deployment of nukes against kaiju, and this. Now you're not going to like this, but. We now know from the prequel that nukes were 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 indeed deployed against the Trespasser, which is the first kaiju, the ones that attacks at San Francisco, takes down the Golden Gate Bridge. But then it turns out once kaiju start coming through regularly, which is something this. Oh, by the way, spoilers! Lots of spoilers. Don't listen if you haven't seen. <laughs> or late. you can listen Sorry. to if you if you don't intend to, or you don't mind spoilers. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah, I can get a lot of flack for putting spoilers on Facebook and kinds of stuff. So, um, I do try and be aware of these things. Yes. Um, he says five minutes into the discussion, but um, yeah, the idea is that kaiju are just coming through too frequently for people to repeatedly deploy um, nukes. Yes. So instead, they and, decide to make. Huh? Oh, sorry. Yes, I absolutely accept this. And once I saw the film, because you don't even need to know anything about the prequel, because they do mention mm -hmm. in the film that um, hundreds have come through. Yeah, clearly nukes were yeah. an option. Yes. Yeah. So, so instead, they make giant uh, human-shaped robot suits, and the question <laughs> is: Is this is this done? So now, now, you know, Guillermo del Toro and others, they've said that this, the design of the look of the the, the Jaeger, um, is basically a homage, a reference to mech culture and what you see in anime and and, and other kaiju-based movies and 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 so on. Um, it's not something that really would make sense in reality, and uh, I, I don't know whether we're whether we're meant to think of a movie like this as something that does have any element of plausibility about it. But obviously, if people are going to make giant robots that fight in the water against mostly amphibious creatures, would you make giant human-shaped ones? And uh, given that we see that some kaiju are leatherback, is gorilla-shaped, and uh, Atachi walks is a quadrupedal thing that swims and flies. What what would be the benefits of building a human shaped thing? Wouldn't you build like swimmy arthropody type things with multiple limbs, far more stable and better on terrain and all kinds of stuff? So if you could, because the point is basically you could do anything in this movie if you got the because they've obviously got the funding to to build super powered, even nuclear powered super robots. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah it's, I. Well, absolutely. It makes no sense to build giant people-shaped <laughs> robots. Um, the one defense I can think of is they've got human pilots, right? And so they're moving like a person. Right. Um, yeah. And therefore, maybe people would be better at piloting something shaped like a person yeah. 
rather than shaped like a giant arthropod or something. Sure, okay. But a gorilla shape, you know, we could work that one. We're exactly the same apart from proportions. So, uh, um, but yeah, other than that, yeah, good good point. I'm sure you could get around it if you really needed to. But I think it's just basically a device to just have, yeah, human-shaped super Power Ranger type things. Yes, and unfortunately the whole piloting giant robots in that way they did doesn't make any sense at all. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> they don't move that quickly. I mean, this is a this is a little bit of a um, discrepancy in the film. The pilots are moving as the robot's meant to move, but of course the pilots, when they cut to the pilots inside the robot, they're moving much more quickly than the robot. Mm. Um, three or four times as fast, I'd say, which of course makes a lot of sense since the robots are meant to be giant and the people are not. Mm. But also, it's not that complicated. The The, the robot's... Uh, you know, walking around and punching. It's not like they've got thousands and thousands of things going on and the only way you could do this was with a direct neural interface. And they're quite slow, right? I can imagine that someone with an Xbox controller would probably be able to control these robots just as well, (laughs) if not better, than being actually inside it, moving around in the the drift with people. Um, I, yeah... uh, 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 Part of me thinks, though, that all this sort of criticism is a bit... <laughs> it's a bit beside the point. Mm. Um, because clearly the whole thing's fairly stylized um, and silly. But um, yeah, yeah. I'll it's get in trouble for saying silly. Okay, stylized then. Yeah, okay. But you do, you do want to um, uh, at least have people suspend their disbelief. And the silliness mm. of giant people-shaped robots piloted by people inside them moving like the robot <laughs> took me out a little well, bit. It did make we, it feel silly. We always do get a massive discrepancy between, on the one hand, you have people saying, you know, uh, reading stuff about the making of this movie, they said, well, we actually looked at the physics of water in actual, you know, to make it look realistic, like when a Jaeger's leg moves through the sea, you know, you see the water vaporised ahead of it, that kind of stuff. So, well, that's good, you do homework. But then how come when um, uh, Gypsy Danger is dropped from the edge of space, we, the, you know, we saw... The heat, you know, the the as as the Jaeger fell, it was heating up as if it was coming through the atmosphere, and then they fall into a foot convenient football stadium, or whatever sports stadium, and and they're okay. I think you know that's you know why get some why go to the trouble of getting something right when there's some other stuff that's um. I tell you why they probably went, to, and this is what I think is always a bit misleading about the way they do these things. The reason they had to look at the water was because if they get it wrong, it looks wrong. It looks, like, right. it looks yeah. like bad CG. Whereas if they yeah. get something like falling through the at- a giant robot falling through the atmosphere technically wrong, um, it, no one knows what that looks like, so it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Because they were only falling from like yeah, 20-ish miles up, weren't they? They weren't, they weren't or maybe even if they were like 100 well, miles up. Well, it couldn't up. have been that high since the kaiju was flapping its wings to fly. So they must have been oh, that's right. relatively yeah. um, thick atmosphere still. Yeah, yeah. So had we, I, I, I can't remember guessing from Otachi, which is the amphibious one that turns out to be pregnant. Um, I can't remember guessing from the look of its limbs that it might have been inspired by bats, which is why, or even pterosaurs, I don't know, which is why it has the weird sprawl. I, I mentioned the Cloverfield-esque gait that it has, mm. Otachi. And uh, that's obviously because um, 
Barlow, presumably Wayne Barlow, cleverly designed uh, a foldable patagium that's concealed when the animal's walking quadrupedia. I kind of like those sorts of touches. I mean, it did seem obviously pretty ridiculous that it would have like a, a wingspan of <laughs> well, 200 meters or, or whatever. But um, yeah. yeah, it's a good looking creature. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, of course, but we have to suspend disbelief. If we're going to have giant monster films, we have to, we have to give this sort of thing, don't we? Um, mm. Yeah, looking at it, it looks quite pterosaurish, actually, looking at some of the images on Google. Well, it even has three little free clawed fingers that are yeah. located near the wrist, which is obviously, you know, pterosaur-inspired. And then if you watch the extent of the wing membrane, it attached to the, the hip. It did not involve the hind limb. So also you, you would guess that whoever designed that was aware of the controversy over pterosaur um, wing membrane attachment and, uh, um, yeah, yeah, went for something. That's, yeah. Well, went for one particular... Uh, proposal that's, that's that's in the literature. Um, yeah, but quite, I mean, Wayne Barlow is a good creature designer, and obviously is drawing um, inspiration from lots of lots of yeah. different sources. Yeah, and they they kind of so on again on the one hand we've had people saying well we haven't we haven't made our creatures look like specifically uh, I don't know a specific species a goblin shark whatever and on the other hand you've had people saying oh there's like a shark kaiju and there's a crab kaiju and there's a pterosaur kaiju a gorilla kaiju um, I did find it I I often you know want to know more want to go deeper in terms of the idea behind the creatures because in this so, so we learn in Pacific Rim that these aren't animals that fit into an ecosystem. Or certainly, you know, I, I, when I was mentioning this stuff over Twitter, some of my uh, friends who are, you know, like marine biologists, they're saying, "Oh yeah, how? Please tell me how these creatures fit into marine ecology and stuff." And I'm saying, "Well, you don't have to worry about that because they don't. They're designed and they've come from another dimension, yeah. and they're actually." They're not creatures that have evolved by natural selection, so far as we know. They, it's implied or semi-stated that they are designed, by, designed as bioweapons by this alien culture. And I believe the idea is that as the different stages, you know, up to Category 5 kaiju, different kaijus coming through, they are incrementally improved bioweapons, which is why they have things that seem ridiculous for animals, like uh, I think it's leatherback, that's the big gorilla-esque one. Um, I think the idea the, the, it, it deploys an electromagnetic pulse that basically knocks out all the electrics, uh, both in the Jaegers and in the, uh, the the Shadow Dome base. I think, but um, it's like uh, that, that, they 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 specifically say that's a, that's not a defense mechanism. That's a weapon. It's like yeah, these are weaponized creatures designed by a culture. And I thought that was a quite cool idea. And I would like to have known more about that. Um, of course, you can't put that in a film. It's going to turn people off. They don't want to know about that. Well, I don't know. I, I do think that there's a lot of assumptions in films about what people want to know about and what they don't want to know about. And I think there would be a defence, well, filmmakers know best, but clearly they don't a lot of the time. Lots of films are flops. So, yeah. um, And some of the best films are the ones that feel the most successful. Uh, often they do have some depth and slower bits and things like this, you know, that, and mm, I think this mm. is a, I think that this is a criticism that I can fairly uncontroversially level at <laughs> Pacific Rim in that it felt like a bit of a blur of action a lot of the time. Now I understand they're aiming at 13 year old boys or whatever, but 
it didn't feel in terms of pacing and just the visual assault of the whole thing that it was fundamentally different to something like Transformers, which I thought was a bit disappointing. I wanted to have a bit more of a... I don't know, its pacing should have been different. It should have felt different. The fights should have felt more important, <laughs> if you see what I yeah. mean. Yeah, well, no, that is a good point because the I think the end is almost... I don't want to say anti-climax, but it's like the big the big scene at the end. It wasn't obviously different from the others, and I kind of feel like it should be, especially given that it's meant to be our first meeting of a Category 5 kaiju, which we obviously saw that... Um, uh, what was his name? The 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 last, the Category Five Kaiju. Um, we obviously saw that that one was bigger and different, but it didn't really feel any kind of you know didn't didn't sort. Of, it, it was like kind of less impressive in a way than the um, the, um, the 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 fights early on early on in the movie. Yeah, well, because the, it the took battles. part under the ocean with nothing for scale except for the um, the Jaegers. Um, which, yeah, and it was all very, very dark, obviously. All, that's another one of my criticisms. All, all the main fight scenes yeah. um, take place in the dark, which I, I don't know whether it was a stylistic choice or a choice because it was cheaper that way. <laughs> but yeah. I felt that was a bit disappointing. There is the one that, um, the Sydney, uh, the, the kaiju that comes up in Sydney, that happens in yeah. the daytime, but that's done as secondary footage in the film, isn't it? It's done as that's uh, right. news footage, um, mm. presumably because the quality can be lower. Um, Good in, point. Yeah, uh, news footage. Uh, so I, yeah, in in the sort of just even in the sort of looking at it in terms of spectacle, I felt like it was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, the category five kaiju is called Slattern, and and uh, I. It just it was very difficult to like exactly get get an understanding of what it was meant to really look like or or be shaped like, and and partly for the reason you've just mentioned, it was it was in the dark and it was a bit of a blur and stuff. But but that that reminds me of something else. The I've been looking at the stats on Slattern, and for a creature that's meant to be five hundred ninety six feet high, whatever that is in meters, it was supposed to supposed to weigh approximately six. 1,750 tons or 6,700 tons for an animal that's about 600 foot tall uh, isn't that like insanely light I, uh, God, I don't like, know maybe like, but as like, we as we had on on the Twitters kaiju pneumaticity right uh, yeah that's from Cameron McCormick uh, Lord Geekington yeah, yeah, maybe they're like hypernematic because because uh, uh, aren't buildings okay? They're made, they're made of concrete, so I'll stop there. Actually, that's a bit of a stupid analogy. Buildings but, um, are highly pneumatic. Yes. No, no, I meant in terms of their <laughs> mass. For something that's like a hundred meters tall, um, is hundreds of thousands of tons, not like a couple of thousand tons. Yes, but they are made of steel and concrete. <laughs> but they are extremely pneumatic. <laughs> Possibly ninety-eight <laughs> percent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, do we have anything else interesting you need to say about it? Because I wanted to. I wanted to mention the backstory to the kaiju, the uh, the weird. If they're that the, we know that they're clones, so the fact that they're all anatomically different. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're when when we saw um, uh, Newton Geisler's 
mind meld drifting with kaiju and we briefly saw a bit of the sort of backstory to whichever kaiju's uh brains the supposedly brainstem uh yeah we have to like mention this because i don't think we really have yet the um the two brains thing that oh well yeah i was gonna well, come look to... we have to mention it otherwise everyone will be very cross if we just don't okay. mention it everyone will be what are they so playing at yeah yeah but but as as i said to you the so Newton says that, that he's explaining that kaiju have two brains, a secondary brain, like a dinosaur. And he actually specifically says that. But first of all, as you all know, if you've read Matt Waddell's battle with, um, oh, I forget the name of the TV company, that thing where the TV company basically selectively quoted him so it made it sound like he was saying that dinosaurs had two brains, a sacral enlargement that basically powered the back end of the animal. When he was it's, actually saying the exact opposite. When he was saying the exact opposite, it's not true. Animals do not have a secondary brain in the sacral region. I think everybody knows that. But there is kind of autonomous control to some actions in the body thanks to the nervous system. So some actions are kind of like automatically controlled by the, ner- by the, the, by the um, spinal cord and not necessarily by the brain. So there's kind of like semi-truth to it. I'm not that bothered by it's meant by the fact that it was mentioned in the film because we don't what Newton Geisler might be a kaiju expert, but who's to say he knows anything about any other animals? Uh, what does he know about dinosaurs? You know, he might be the same as any other idiot because um, it's not difficult to find people that do think that they're. A, he was meant to be a neurologist, though, wasn't he? He was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, he was meant to be a, like a leading biologist or something, which is a bit of a a flaw in my otherwise flawless uh, deduction. <laughs> But, yeah, um, I thought, but I thought both of those characters were very disappointing in terms of depictions yeah. of scientists. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Mm, Which goes to, yeah, okay. So even if you don't think it was sexist, uh, it's a bit... A lot of the characters were pretty silly. Some well, of them a the bit other, insulting. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, was, what was the other, the other scientist called? The other alleged scientist? I can't remember his name, but I, I just... No, but it doesn't do anybody any favours by depicting a, a scientist like that. So Herman Gottlieb. So he's like basically socially incapable. He can't even talk to other humans. And yeah, there are people like that. There are scientists yeah. like that. But it's not doing anyone any favours by depicting anyone like that. And someone that gets to be this important in this kind of organisation, on the one hand, uh, um, Marshall um, Pentecost did say that they were like, he, he, he made some reference to the fact that the, 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 they are the resistance. So they're like the last, they don't have like a big fancy science wing. They just basically got a few bits and pieces that work with him. So who knows whether Newton Geisler and Herman Gottlieb are the best, but I kind of assume that they are. They're meant to be like the world's leading kaiju experts. And we see Gottlieb as this brilliant, yeah, the way movies show someone, that someone's a brilliant theoretician, mathematician, because they know how to use chalk and a blackboard. Yeah, that, that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a stick, you know, a cane or something. But for seriously, for someone that's meant to be this big and this important, and that would be someone who is like, yeah, really smart, the top of their game. But they also have to be charismatic, you know, a, a people person. They would have been good at like politicking, which is Christ knows that's more important than anything else in, in science. In yeah, some ways, this, this really gets my goat. The way scientists are portrayed in films, like a top scientist in a multi-billion dollar operation is portrayed as some sort of socially inept idiot uh, no yeah. no top scientists are smooth and convincing and 
they're politicians in lots of ways. Yes, um, that's true. And <laughs> oh god, it's so annoying. And yeah, so even if this was the resistance, it's still a you know it's a big operation. There's a lot of money there. Um, okay, it's not as big as it used to be when it was being funded by the world's militaries, but it, it's still big, right? There's still yeah thousands of people working for them. Um, huge amount of machinery presumably these machines run on stuff that they have to buy you know it's still <laughs> a tremendous amount of money flowing into that that's a big gig for a scientist to get i can't believe that these two uh <laughs> socially inept boobs managed to uh, <laughs> talk their way into it i really am <laughs> i agree i absolutely agree yeah so so that, that was a frustration for, for me it, it it doesn't it doesn't portray scientists well but it also doesn't portray the way culture and society works it's just not how things work you cannot have like a bumbling socially inept person with a with a strange accent and a cane who's basically been bullied his entire life that's that person would not be uh we know we know he was bullied from the mind meld that um that he shared with uh, with Newton. Yes. So, um, um, so the second brain thing, yeah, whatever. Okay, it's stupid, but you know, it's no more stupid than many other things. Um, yeah. In the so film, let me ask you this: What do you think Pacific Rim brought to the sci-fi genre, which felt new and interesting? Um, well, now I have a slight advantage over you in that I saw the movie in IMAX before I saw it in a normal cinema, and I think that part of I've I've thought this ever since Amazing Spider-Man came out. I think that people are now deliberately designing movies in order for them to be sheer spectacles, as in like glittering lights and noises in you know bombarding you and. Bursts of light. Again, that's a bit of a Star Trek reference, maybe, but but you know, this there's this idea that it's just like a giant flashy spectacle where you are absorbed into the action. And in IMAX, I did feel that for Pacific Rim. I also did for Man of Steel, which I thought was excellent as well. Um, and I think that's the thing people are going for. Oh, so sure. how? Yeah. However, when you take it away from that environment that maybe it's designed for, I mean, 3D and IMAX, gigantic screens. When you take it away from that, then yeah, it's. Uh, it's got some interesting new kaiju that are designed by someone who we respect immensely, and they they look good. But um, other than that, yeah, it's yeah, I don't know. Let's see how if Godzilla come, comes out next year. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it compares to that, and whether we'll think that that is wow, it's a real game changer. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think the same for. It's rare Pacific that films are. It's just that Pacific Rim had such buzz. I thought there was going to be some new twist. To, yeah. the, to the feel of the thing or new, some new ideas introduced and some people say you know the drift was a uh, new idea i guess but i i feel like that's what that's a vulcan mind meld isn't it that's, that was even referred to that wasn't it did someone say mind meld type thing i'm sure someone referred to it, something yeah. along those lines so yeah that's not that's not original and yeah. i think that the main thing it brings is hollywoodification of kaiju um, which, given that Dudzilla, Scudzilla, awful, awful film, um, given that that's so such a travesty, um, but the Cl- Cloverfield did it and did it well. Yeah, yeah, but but Cloverfield's different in that it's meant to be a first-person shaky cam um, a small story, isn't it? Which which meant that people. People that don't like reality TV <laughs> don't like Cloverfield because they put it in that in that camp. Uh, I take I take your point though, and um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, mm, yeah, I, I think I think 
big, big screen, awesome kaiju type monsters in a big movie, and lots of kaiju. Um, that's cool. But other than that, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. If you, if you didn't see it, in, if you didn't see it in IMAX in 3D, it's now there were. Just, uh, I don't want to be too harsh on the whole thing. There were good scenes in it. I don't, I don't think that it was a complete flop in terms of spectacle, even on the pathetic, you know. 25 meter screen we saw it on um <laughs> we did actually we did actually see it in uh i just thought better explain we did see this in a large normal theater it wasn't imax but it was the i think it's called extreme oh yeah um so it was it was a it was a large theater um but uh there were some great good scenes i i i, I liked a lot of the scenes um like the the when it comes out of the water after after he's been fighting with the kaiju that kills his brother falls on the oh, yeah, Alaskan yeah. beach yeah I thought that's that was cool. that was a great scene some of the fight scenes had bits in them that I liked you know we've mentioned the um, picking up the picking up the ship which did yeah. sort of feel wrong but I, I I do think that was quite a memorable little scene of course the rocket propelled punch yeah, that was yeah. pretty funny. That elbow rocket. Elbow, elbow rocket. Elbow rocket. <laughs> <laughs> That's what elbow grease was invented for, I guess. <laughs> so, um, there are some good things. But in some ways, I thought that um, tonally they were all a bit uneven. It couldn't, because the elbow rocket thing was clearly funny and would have worked better in a more of a uh, a lighter film, a, a film with a funnier sort of touch, right? I think that I would have been more on the edge of my seat shouting, awesome! <laughs> if, if it hadn't had sort of in many ways i don't want to say a, a dr yeah it did pacific rim had a dreary sort of feel a lot of the time everyone was quite miserable the main characters were especially miserable you know yeah. oh terrible things had happened to them and oh mopey mope mope and so which can be fine but then you go and you, you have these miserable characters <laughs> and then you go rocket propelled punch engage i just <laughs> <laughs> felt go, go totally uneven just... to me a bit, yeah incongruous um, yeah and nemo says uh sorry memo coastman he had a good comment on one of my rantings on facebook uh, maybe i should try and find it um but basically he said no we can't find it, it'll take too long he says it um it felt like a a bunch of um concept paintings sort of strung to get barely strung together in a film and i in some ways i think that was true there was lots of you could sort of see it was seen 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 and the plot mm. Mm. well it took very much backstage to that i think that was in some ways deliberate but um i i felt like it did suffer a little bit <laughs> in that respect i would have liked more build-up um i thought it was very odd that it felt like a sequel straight away now I understand that's because it sort of is, right? There's a prequel already. Yeah, um, a, a graphic novel, yeah. A graphic novel, but so it's already got a um, a pre-built backstory and everything, right? A lot of these films, um, they make the film and then they make up this stuff afterwards, right? Mm. Like yeah. I'm sure Star Trek and uh, sorry Star Wars and lots of these other things is, you know, a lot of the the mythology of it is 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 done after the fact 
Whereas this one, it seems like they invented it beforehand. But then you, you launched into the film and then they, 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 they basically give you this whole great big story garbled out at the beginning about what's happened in the first mm. three minutes. Um, and then you're straight into big action. Well, you're into action straight away, aren't you? Um, because they're showing scenes of the first kaiju wrecking the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like this immediately. Yep. Yeah. And I felt like it could have really benefited from being a little more of a slow burn into the giant monsters because it didn't feel shocking when none of the monsters felt shocking after that, did they? No, no, it did strike me that, yeah, the one thing I thought at the time was, well, straight into massive action, literally into the more of the trespass of the, the first one. But, um, oh, I don't know. It's, I, guess yeah. I, I guess I'm struggling. What, <laughs> what I'm struggling with this film is I don't, I can't get a grip on anything in it which is good or unusually good. Yeah. I I can see that you know some of the, as I say some of the scenes they're good I quite like some of them you know overall I don't think it was a terrible film but I'm just trying to get a grip on what what's really good in this film whereas most other films you can point to something that have had this sort of buzz about them this sort of following you can think well that that's it I get what the good thing in this film is even if I think mm, that overall mm. it didn't really work um, but this one I'm I'm still struggling to find get a grip on what is great in it yeah i can't say there's anything more than the than the kaiji than than the creatures and to to an extent the tech but yeah the giant robots i mean they're quite cool aren't they yeah i I just thought i would mention the the alloys thing um that they said a few times in the film that these things were extra specially strong because they weren't made of alloys it's a pure (laughs) iron (laughs) (laughs) that's uh that's a pretty basic science mistake there. Why did they do that? Why? Well, and and again, why why wasn't it would have been quite easy to come up with some techno babble about the design of the the Jaegers and the materials, some some newfangled you know yeah composite material, blah blah blah, super light, super strong. But I was expecting something like that. One um, of them was meant to. I mean, did they mention? I, I don't watch films as closely as you. I think in some ways. But didn't they say that there was actually they were run with diesel engines? I don't remember diesel. I do remember them saying something about um, analog versus uh, digital, which was kind of confusing. I think that what they were describing the older one, the first first generation one, and I think they mentioned that it was powered by something like one thousand three hundred diesel engines. Ah, uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, Stack of Pentecost did say something like they use in terms of horsepower. They had a term of res- reference which was something like diesel engine power per muscle strand. I'm pretty sure that was used. So it was oh. like equivalent to to each each movement of its arm is equivalent to like 50 trucks. That that that's the kind of thing. I'm, I'm, oh, I think okay. That's what so you're I misunderstood. I to. thought that each muscle strand was literally a diesel engine. No, I'm pretty. I'll have to check, but I'm pretty sure it was used as a standard of measurement. In some ways, like, like horsepower. <laughs> These are engine powered mega super robots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a well, steampunk, we should also, that is, or diesel well, punk, that, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> a steampunk world would indeed, as Tom Holtz will tell you, is it would be a, a hot house world with a crazy high CO2 and everything. But, um, um, what was the deal with the reference? You don't know the answer to this. I don't know the answer to this. But what was the deal with the? They they mentioned um, phase one of the uh, kaiju invasion, and they mentioned it's something to do with the dinosaurs and and uh, Cretaceous dinosaurs, didn't they? They said something like 
that and that was the dark, uh, maybe maybe in Newton's um, uh, drift uh, experiment, he said something about they 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 tried it before with the dinosaurs and now the conditions are right, uh, polluted oceans, high CO two, and now they're trying again. Yeah, I see. So, I so, heard something different to you, but I accept that your explanation makes more sense. That I heard, and I've read other people heard this as well. That that's what dinosaurs were. Dinosaurs were kaiju. And they died out because the conditions weren't right. Mm. Whereas well, you heard that the dinosaurs were killed by the kaiju, which I accept makes somewhat more sense. But, um, yeah, neither neither explanation is good. And the first no. one, the idea that that the dinosaurs might be aliens created, designed aliens from another culture. That's just that's a bit like Prometheus you know linking humans with the the engineers that kind of rubbish i really hate that because it's so inconsistent with um yeah they, well, they, they everything really else to, we know they really need to stop that stuff i mean also i think it's just it feels willfully anti-science to keep going with that sort of trope exactly yeah so here we are 2013 and people are still making sci-fi movies with, with sciencey stuff in it robots and giant creatures that blah 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 oh reference to dna as well you know come on if it's an alien culture they're not it's not going to be dna it's going to be some <laughs> other molecule that does the job of dna so why couldn't they it'll be no trouble at all to say br briefly in a conversation now this is the kaiju and it's RBC, that's the chemical that's kind of like does the same job as DNA. But yeah. why can't they think to do that? It's like, again, the people that, I don't think the people that come up with this stuff actually know enough about basic science to, 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 to take, to put these concepts in. And why not? Why, who are they, who are they using to do the, to do this kind of stuff? Come on, get it right. We need, there still, there still isn't a kind of film that like does ha have the depth and the scope to satisfy the, no. the important. Well, I think the, I think there's a lot of problems in creating sci-fi like this. In that, you need people doing things. So, okay, so what are the, the non-moving parts? What bits can't we change about a film like um, like Pacific Rim? I think the central premise was giant humanoid robots fighting Godzilla-type monsters, right? Yeah. Okay, so we take those as fixed points. We can't change those things. It's very, very, very difficult to come up with a logical reason why people had to build giant humanoid robots, isn't it? And I think that... Eccentric once... billionaires. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know? there was the failed eccentric... There was the failed uh, Rupert Murdoch plan of 2052, but that, that lasted for a... Uh, that lasted actually, for a day. That would actually be pretty funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would. But this it was would. a trend amongst... Some me a mega wealthy cabal of billionaires that they would go out and fight in a suit in a giant robot, yeah, and that was the way they were going to beat the kaiju, and that actually, strangely enough, it turned out to be somewhat <laughs> it successful. Was a massive disaster. No, oh, successful. successful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it actually works, and everyone thought, oh, okay, maybe that's not such a bad idea then. Yeah, you can understand that in desperation, I'm sure people would do stupid things, you know, like trying to drill into an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, um, um, yeah. and that could, make, that could could well make the premise for a good movie, but you, you might have to show that in actual fact, there are other people who know what they're doing who are adopting a different approach that um, yes. uh, was more successful or <laughs> less successful. That would be funny. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. 
Right. Okay, well, we've been talking. <laughs> yeah, we've been going... <laughs> I think we did an right. hour on that. Okay, so let's wrap up. Um, so st- what, what's our projected finish time for CryptoZoologicon? I really want to have it out in October. Late October. October. Well, that's going to be... Yeah, okay, well, good luck with that. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the progress. So, so that we're working on the CryptoZoologicon, among many other things. Um... Lots of new stuff on Tetrapod Zoology. Uh, there will be um, the, the the review of the exhibition I'll be talking about, and uh, yeah, some other stuff. Looks around for things you're going to be writing about. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're interested in the sort of stuff we've been talking about, you might want to buy all yesterday's, which is still available from all good digital retailers. Do we have any? And Tetrapod Zoology Book One still available digitally uh, from digital retailers and non-digital ones as well. I understand. Well, dis- despite our huge surge in visitor numbers, we're not seeing a concomitant huge surge in uh, in donations. So, thank you very much to those people who have donated. Obviously, yes. I, here's the thing I'll say about donations: is that the people that have donated have donated, you know, reasonable chunks of change, which is great. Thank you very much. But you know, don't feel bad if you're like donating, like three bucks or two quid or whatever. That's fine. We're happy with that. That's good. I think maybe yeah. that's the thing. When, when people think donations have to be 10 or $20 or pounds or that kind of money. So, because, yeah, um, no, yeah. we'll we're not it. making money off this. We're just aiming to cover hosting costs, which which are small but persistent. So, But um, also, yeah, we, <laughs> I wouldn't mind going pro. <laughs> oh, I'm not in this for the money. No, I'm not in the money-making business. I, I like living like a pauper, yeah, hand-to-mouth. That's the, way, yeah, so. the way it's gone so far. I don't <laughs> think it's ever going to change. So, um, Well, it might. It might, Darren. You know, big donations yeah. for the podcast. That'd so I haven't actually... Yes, of course, yes. Who knows? Who knows? Well, yeah. Um, I haven't written about Pacific Rim at Tetrapods Zoology. I'm kind of thinking about it. I haven't had time to even begin to, to do anything along those lines, but I might. Tetrapods Zoology is currently hosted at Scientific American. There's a Tetrapods Zoology Facebook page. There's a Tetrapods Zoology podcast, which is currently hosted at tetzoo.com. And uh, I tweet at... At Echo Station 3 ta we've spotted Imperial Walkers. Tetsu, at, at Tetsu. You tweet as well, I believe. Yes, at Nike to Terrace. It's Nick to Terrace. And you can visit my website at johnconway.co. Make a noise to begin the podcast. Tetsu Podcast, woohoo! <laughs>